reading comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 8 to 20, which can be found on page 474 of some of your pew Bibles. Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 8 to 20. Verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over both of them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor, and he can carry and he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain, since he toils for the wind? All the days he eats in darkness, with great frustration and affliction and anger. Then I realized it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few years of life God has given him, for that is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the day's life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. This is God's word. I'd actually like to invite you to turn back in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're not going to begin with verse 8. We're actually going to um, start from verse 1. So let me read verses 1 through 7. And can you turn me down a little bit? Sounds like I'm in a telephone booth. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. 
I'd like to ask you a question as I begin the message today. And that question is, what is the most serious thing that you will do this week? What is the most serious thing that you will do this week? And as you're thinking about that, I'll ask Justin or whoever's got the roving mic to come up front so you can see who wants to raise their hand and respond to the question. What's the most serious thing you'll do this week? Raise your hand if you want to share with us and we'll bring you the mic. Anybody want to share? Maybe none of you are doing anything serious this week. Um, okay. Studying for two tests. Studying for two tests. Okay, thank you for sharing. And someone else? Uh, what's the most serious thing you'll do this week? Someone else? Spreading God's word around my school. That's pretty serious. Okay, great. Someone else. What's the most serious thing you'll do this week? Play ping pong at work. Okay. You have an easy life, dude. Okay, someone else. What's the most serious thing? I didn't say the most remarkable thing or the funnest thing. Is that a word, funnest? Um, What's the most serious thing you'll do? Let's have three more people share quickly. Okay? I'm going to inspect some plumbing work that was supposed to be properly done to see if it's leaking behind the walls. And that's serious. When your plumbing leaks, we've all been there. Okay, someone else. Two other people. What's the most serious thing you'll do this week? Okay, this side of the congregation seems to be awake, so I'm now going to turn my attention and preach my sermon over here. The rest of you, you need to wake up, okay? <clears throat> okay, there's a hand right there. We'll, we'll get you in just a second. I ate a sandwich. Okay. That was very interesting. I'm not so sure it's serious, though, unless it was egg salad. Um, and then it's very serious. Someone else? Listening to the sermon. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. And yes. Okay. What? One other person. <clears throat> Last one. Searching for a new job. Searching for a new job. Okay. Very, very serious business. Okay. Now. Everything that y'all shared was quite interesting, even entertaining at points, and of course, very disturbing, as in Peter's plumbing problems. Um, But actually, when you think of the answer to the question from the perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes, verses uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, you realize that the absolute most serious, and I would even say most important thing that you could do in your week is come and worship. In the house of God. Would you look with me at verse 1? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Worshiping God is serious business. So serious that we begin this message and we begin this passage with a warning. Guard your steps. 
In other words, realize that you're going to be accountable to your worship when you come to the house of God. Now, when this passage was written, it wasn't written to modern-day Christians 2,000 years after Jesus walked on the earth. It was written to Old Testament Jewish people when they had the temple to go to. And so we need to think from the perspective of one who goes to the temple to worship and goes to the temple to offer their sacrifices to the Lord before the time when Jesus has come, when we see what is said here. And then I'll go from there into making principles and applications for today. But at the time when this was written, the worshipers went up to the temple and they offered what's known as the votive offering. Not vote as in vote for this person for president, this person for mayor. Not that kind of vote, but voted as in vow. And a vow was something where you go into the presence of God and you would promise the Lord something. And sometimes that promise would be attended with sacrifices that you would bring to the Lord. So what we have in this passage right from the outset is a warning to guard our steps when we go to the house of God and to listen to the Lord rather than to hastily, with our words, offer a vow to the Lord in his sight. So we see in verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. And the reason that's given later in verse 2 is because God is in heaven And you are on earth, so let your words be few. So what we see in this passage is something that goes absolutely against the way most of us think about God. We think about God as our buddy. Jesus is our homeboy. Um, And Jesus is our friend. And so we, we think about the imminence of God, the presence of God, God with us. God there for us when we have a need. Some of you said the most serious thing that you'll do is take a test this week. So when you have a need, you call upon the Lord to help you in your life now. But that's all about the here and now. And instead, the text raises us into the heavens and says, wait a minute. God is not only imminent with us in our day to day discouragements and difficulties. God is transcendent. He is above all. He's in heaven. Where is Jesus now? He's not in the tomb. He's raised from the dead. He is exalted. And God is in the heavens and you are on earth. So therefore, be extremely careful with what you say to the Lord and in the presence of the Lord. When I was in college, I made a bet with my sister and with my dad's two business partners. And the bet went like this, that I could go the entire time of college and not take a sip of alcohol. And if I won the bet, then they would have to pay me thousands of U.S. dollars. Because imagine that, a college student going through college without drinking? Impossible. Well, I knew for me it was possible, so I made the bet, and guess what? Guess who won the bet? Me or my dad's business partners. Why am I smiling? No, not the business partners, people. I won the bet. And so when, when I graduated from, um, from, from college... I won a trip to Hawaii. Actually, I got a car and I got a trip to Hawaii. It was awesome. So I go to Hawaii and I hang out with with a friend of mine uh, and we did something known as cliff diving. Now, if you've ever done cliff diving in Hawaii, there's two ways to do it. You go to a place that has deep water and a high cliff and you jump off. Or you go to a place that doesn't have as high of a cliff, but you jump into the water and then you wait for the water to then pick you up and then place you back on the rock. Okay? Well, I wasn't into the high skydive stuff because I don't like 
high places. Neither does my dog, Pedro. Um, so because I'm afraid of heights, I thought, well, I can do, you know, the cliff diving that's sort of uh, for beginners. So we get out there and my friend says to me, be very careful because when you get out of the water, you have to wait for a wave that's the right size. Because if you pick the wrong size wave, it will smash you against the rocks and there's barnacles and it, it will hurt. You know, and there's also sharks out there. We're in 30 feet deep of water. I'm thinking, OK, I can do this. So the water goes down and I realize that's time for me to jump. So then I jump in and then I wait for the water to come up. Um, but unfortunately, I picked the wrong wave and the wrong wave slammed me against the rocks. My hand hit the barnacles and slit my hands, I started bleeding and I was, I went back in the water on my back realizing I'm in 30 feet deep water and there are sharks and I'm bleeding. Okay. <laughs> and at that point, it was the perfect point in my life to utter a vow to the Lord. And here's what I said to God. I said, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I will never disobey my mother who told me not to go into the water above my knees when I went to Hawaii. So my mom, my mom had given me strict orders, son, you know, play it safe and, and don't get into the water above your knees. And I looked at her like, are you crazy? I'm going to Hawaii. So in that moment of bleeding, thinking of sharks, not wondering Wondering whether or not I'd pick the right wave to get out of the place. I prayed to God, Lord, you help me pick the right wave. And I promise I will never, ever disobey my mom again. Well, guess what? Um, God heard my prayer and I kept my word. I did not disobey my mother again. Um, but I didn't uh, ask her or sometimes I didn't tell her where I was going because I didn't want her to say <laughs> crazy things. But that's beside the point. The point is, is that. The writer to Ecclesiastes is telling you, when you're caught between a rock and a hard place, don't do the things that fools do and utter up a rash vow about what you'll do if God does this. Instead, let your words be few. Consider them carefully and don't be like a fool. Interesting thing about verse one is we see the characteristics of fools. Number one. The fool offers a sacrifice to God and they don't know that they're doing wrong. And this is interesting because I think a lot of people are like this today. A lot of people come to church. They come into the presence of the Lord. They want to offer a sacrifice. They actually think that they could pay their way out of whatever their problems are. I had a Buddhist friend in Taiwan who used to sell fruit and he had this idea of God. So he said, if, if I come to your church and I become a Christian, then how much money do I need to give? Every week. And he was concerned about his sacrifice and what he would have to give in order for God to accept him. Brothers and sisters, don't you see that from the perspective of the New Testament, we don't come to the worship of God to try and give God something to earn favor in his sight. We come to worship to offer sacrifices of praise to the one who has given everything for us. But fools will be fools and they will say just about anything. They will say too much. They will not fulfill their vows, according to this passage. And then notice what they do in verse five. They pro in verse six. They protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. In other words, like I didn't really know what I was doing when I said this. So God cut me some slack here. A vow was a very sacred promise taken in the Old Testament times. 
And the temple messenger was there to enforce the vow. If you promised God that if he blessed you and gave you a child, you'd buy two turtle doves, then when you come to the temple, you buy your two turtle doves. And here's a guy who comes up and says, well, you know, I really wasn't thinking how much it would cost if I had to buy two turtle doves. And from the perspective of the Bible, um, we're told that we shouldn't think that way and we shouldn't act that way. We shouldn't be like fools in the presence of God. And then verse 7 ends with some, something interesting. It says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Well, what's this thing about dreams? Going back earlier in the passage, verse 3, a dream comes when there are many cares. There were people back then who felt like God speaks to me and speaks to all of us simply through our dreams. So they were always talking about their dreams, always talking about their dreams. So in verse 7, the writer to Ecclesiastes says, much dreaming and many words offered up as vows precipitously and hastily in the sight of God are simply meaningless. Instead, what, what should we all do? The text says in verse 7, the last two words, fear God. Respect God. Brothers and sisters, we are living in an age today that does not fear the Lord, that does not respect the Lord, that does not respect the principles that God has given us in His Word about what is righteousness. The Ten Commandments mean virtually nothing to most people. So people sleep with their, uh, their girlfriends, their boyfriends, their significant others outside of wedlock and think absolutely nothing of it. People in high places lie day after day after day and think that there's... There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. People worship themselves rather than worship the living God. And they think it's fine because I can do whatever I want to. This is America, you know. And we're living in a time and a place where people have lost the respect of God. And so they don't reverence him. And so the first thing the Lord wants us to do is to fear the Lord and consider our words very, very carefully. Now, notice there's something else that happens beginning in verse eight. In verse 8, there's something that we're not supposed to be surprised at. We're not supposed to be surprised by oppression and the greed of those who profit from their high position. Listen to verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So what we have here is, is a picture of the world as we see it today, especially in, in third world countries or in developing countries like Indonesia, where I spent five years, Abby and I spent five years in Indonesia, and it was completely different from America. It was so evident that you have the rich. Well, you have three groups of people, the rich, the people in control who may or may not be rich. And then over here, you have the poor, a very small middle class in Indonesia. But most people fall into those categories of rich in control and possibly rich, but maybe not. And then over here, the abject poor. And what we saw time after time after time was oppression, even in the courts. We had a dear friend of ours get unjustly charged with stealing money. And I've shared this story before. And uh she was forced to sign a confession. And as I looked at that, I was surprised. And the Bible says we shouldn't be surprised. But let me tell you why I was surprised at the oppression that I saw in Indonesia. I was surprised because I very naively assumed that if Indonesia had a court system, that it would work properly and that she would get justice and that it 
it would show that she wasn't even in the building on the day that she was supposedly uh, said to have stolen money. But I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong. My friend went to prison. She had to sign a confession that she didn't um, for a crime that she didn't commit and confess to it. And then I had to pay the fee and the fine several months later to get her out of prison. It was absolutely terrible. And as I looked at this oppression, I was absolutely dumbstruck that the institution of government that's supposed to protect people had become the very means by which she was suffering oppression. And part of it was because of the greed of other people. Even before she she went to prison, I, I get a phone call and the phone call goes like this. If you pay her fine, then we'll drop the charges. Well, I wasn't going to pay the fine. I wasn't going to pay the amount of money that was stolen because I knew she didn't do it. And I thought that the courts would protect her. So I thought, I'll put my money towards a lawyer because I don't want my friend to go through life having it on her record that she uh, was convicted for a crime that she didn't do. So I didn't pay the fee. I didn't pay the crime. um, And I didn't do what... I should have done if I wanted to keep her out of prison. So she goes to prison and then I saw this text lived out in my life because of the greed of those who profit from their high position. The police chief wanted a bribe. The lawyer wanted a bribe. The judge wanted a bribe. So she gets convicted, she goes to court, and I still had to pay the bribes. Well, brothers and sisters, that's the crazy, messed up, wicked world that we live in. And we shouldn't be surprised if we're looking at life from the perspective of the Bible because people are sinful and people are greedy. And just as the Bible says, people will use their position, even the king himself, profits from the fields. People will use anything that they can to get on top of someone else and to gain from it. And we shouldn't be surprised. I don't know any more starker contrast that I could possibly think of in a text of Scripture as this text next to Jesus Christ. Here in the world, we have sinful, greedy people trying to get more, get more, get more, get more, and get higher, 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 higher above everybody else so that we can't be oppressed. We can become the oppressors. And then here we have Jesus Christ who came from so high. He left his Father's throne above. So free, so infinite. His grace emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's chosen race. Here's Christ and we see his grace. You know, the grace of the Lord that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The contrast couldn't be more Christ in all of his glory, the creator of the universe becomes the created being so he can share our pain, share our sufferings, share all the difficulty of this world that's full of oppression and then die for our sins that we might receive his righteousness instead. Absolutely amazing. So when we come to Scripture, we shouldn't simply be surprised by the oppression and greed of those who profit from their high position. We should be amazed by God's unbelievable grace. Now, notice as we go on, there's a third principle. And this one, I, I think, is where most of us live. Um, if you look at my outline, you'll see um, under the third point, the principle goes like this. And it comes from verse 13. I'll read the verses and then we can find the principle. In verse 13, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, 
wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil so that they can carry in their hand that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil as everyone comes. So they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind all their days? They eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. What do we see? Life is unfair. And you will die naked with nothing. That's what the Lord wants you to meditate on today, that life is unfair and you will see this. It's unfair. Uh, In fact, the Bible doesn't even doesn't just call it unfair. It says in verse 13, it's a grievous evil. There's something wrong with the fact that somebody can lose all of their wealth, wealth that they wanted to pass on to their kids. They lose through some misfortune. Put yourself now in the position of every single person who's living in Puerto Rico many of whom lost their homes, they lost almost everything, and now they're not going to have very much to pass on to their kids because they barely have enough to eat and get through their day. When the Bible looks at bad things that happen like that, it calls them evil. And when we hear of a grievous evil, we realize that not only is in this passage, but also if you think back to Job, when, the, when Job talks about an evil day that happens, that evil is not only moral, it's not simply and evil inside of us. And it's not simply spiritual beings like Satan that we have to war against. Evil is also situational. Bad things happen. And we know that there's something wrong. Uh, a kid dies unexpectedly because they accidentally fell out of a tree. And we're like, oh, that is so wrong. That is so bad. Well, what we, we call a bad, from the perspective of verse 13, the Bible calls a grievous evil. And when you think about the evil in the world, not only the moral evil, but the situational evil, for so many people, what it does is it causes them to say, I will not believe in God. That's their response. What is your response to a world that is unfair? Where situational evil as well as moral evil exists? What is your response to a world where you come into the world and you have nothing? You come into the world naked. You die naked. I know we try and put clothing on dead people and sometimes we open up the casket. When my father died, um, they had an open viewing at the funeral home. And I said to my mom, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to see that. You know, that's ridiculous. You dress up a dead person in clothing. Um, I wasn't going to go there. I wanted to remember my father as he was. But we sent my father to the grave in his best blue suit, according to my mom. But actually, we all die naked. Just the way we came into the world. You die with nothing. That's the whole point. And many people look at what's wrong with the world, the situational evil, the moral evil, and they say there's no way there can be a God because if there was a God, he would do something about it. And that's the way many people respond. And that's the excuse that many people give as to why they won't become Christians. is because I can't worship a God who allows evil. Well, I ask you this question. Is there evil inside of you? Have you offended the Almighty God? What would happen if God, at 12 o'clock midnight tonight, were to eradicate all evil from the world? Would you still be standing? Don't you see, brothers and sisters, the fact that God hasn't dealt with evil completely, forever, 
as he will do on the last day. The fact that he hasn't done that gives opportunity for you and for me and for every other sinful person in the world to repent of our sins. And so we regard the patience of the Lord to be salvation, not impotency of deity. We're not saying, as we wait for God to deal with everything ultimately and to right every wrong, we're not saying that our God isn't all-powerful. We're saying, no, that not only is he all-powerful and he will judge one day, we're saying that God is also merciful and so God bears patiently with me and he bears patiently with you and he bears patiently with everyone else, many of whom in this world haven't yet repented of their sins. Life is unfair You will die naked with nothing, but from the perspective of Ecclesiastes, that doesn't keep you from worship. That causes you even to be more careful in your worship. And notice the last principle that we see from this passage. And we see this beginning in verse 18. That principle is enjoy your life and your short life now. Or when I wrote this and sent it to Christine um, for the bulletin, enjoy your work. And your short life now. But whether you want to say enjoy your life or enjoy your work, listen to the enjoyment of verse 18. This is one of those conclusion points where the narrator goes from talking about the world as it is that we saw um, in the second and third point to now telling us what we should do as we saw in the first point and we now see in this point. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Do you see the contrast between verses 17 All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. And now look at this. All their days they eat, they drink, they find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under their sun during the few days of their life because they realize that their life is the life that God has given to them. Verse 19. When God gives to someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, accept that lot and be happy in their toil. This is God's gift. I find verse 20 to be one of the most interesting verses in the entire Old Testament. Look at it closely. Verse 20, they seldom reflect. These are the happy people. These are the people whose work isn't simply this endless frustration, but because they've received it as a gift from God, it's become their daily delight. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. They seldom reflect on the days of their life. You know what? These are people who are living in the now of enjoyment in the presence of God. When they don't reflect on their days, they don't think about how hard it was before. They're not stuck in the regrets of the past, as so many of us are, and as so many of you are today. You regret something you've done or not done, and all the problems it's caused, and you're not worried about the future. You don't reflect on the days of your life because God keeps you occupied with gladness of heart. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, if you want to say that you are following the Ecclesiastes study, that God's speaking to you and it's actually making a difference in your, in your life, ask yourself this one question. Do you enjoy your life more now, this very moment, this day, and your work? If so, then you're living right where God wants 
you to be. Not in a meaningless life, but in a meaningful life that's lived out in the enjoyment of the God who loves you, who sent his son for you, and who's with you every day, even in the challenges. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us not only the challenges of what seems like a meaningless life, but the enjoyments of what becomes a life enriched, lived to the fullness, and a life of joy. Lord, I pray for everyone in the congregation that you give them joy, a deep and abiding joy in spite of the difficulties of tests, in spite of the difficulties of plumbing, in spite of the difficulties of sandwiches, in spite of the difficulties of everything that we we have to deal with in our week. I pray, Lord, that you'd give an amazing joy so people would be struck with not only how serious we are about our worship, but how much joy and thankfulness we have in the presence of a gift-giving God. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us Jesus, the greatest gift and the gift of our lives and the gift of our work. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen.